welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Inside the BACB. I'm Dr. Sarah Jenkins, the Certification Resource Manager, and I'm joined by Dr. Holly Seniuk, the Director of Ethics at the BACB. Hi everyone! This episode is part of the RBT series where we discuss all things about becoming and being an RBT. Today, we're breaking down the ethical responsibilities of having an RBT certification. I am so glad that we're talking about this topic. When you're starting in this profession, I think the focus and drive for being an RBT is making a difference in people's lives. In some cases, the RBT certification is required by funding sources to provide services to clients. So providers commit to completing the initial and maintenance requirements for the certification. But I think what is often overlooked or underestimated is that things aren't always as straightforward as they are when completing initial training. For example, when you encounter ethical dilemmas. I think you're absolutely right. Situations arise that can turn into ethical conundrums pretty quickly, and they have the potential to negatively impact certification status if not addressed appropriately. My hope is that our listeners walk away with a better understanding of what the RBT ethics code is all about and how to identify when a breach of this code is likely and what to do about it. All right, so let's start by reviewing the general themes of the RBT ethics code, which are following the guidance and instruction of the supervisor and providing services within the RBT's scope of practice. Holly, can you expand on those themes? Sure. The RBT ethics code was developed to one, protect consumers receiving behavior analytic services, and two, support the integrity of the RBT certification. Let's talk about consumer protection first. It's important for RBTs to follow the guidance and instructions of their supervisor because the supervisor has the experience and background needed to identify appropriate programs and behavior analytic teaching strategies for each client. The RBT's role is to implement those and only those programs with the client. This is what we refer to as their scope of competence. Running programs or using strategies outside of this scope puts the client at risk because they haven't been vetted by the supervisor and may not be appropriate for the client. Now, that's not to say that an RBT can't or shouldn't discuss other programs or teaching strategies with their supervisor. They just shouldn't implement them without approval first. That's a really good point. The risk of harm to clients is too great and actually has serious implications for the RBT if something goes wrong. It's best for the RBT to chat with their supervisor about the client's services and be their advocate. This is something we discuss more in the RBT Supervision Podcast. Now, you mentioned that compliance with the RBT Ethics Code helps protect the integrity of the certification. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. These standards, the RBT Ethics Code, protect consumers and, by extension, the providers who model good ethics. When certificates act in a way that is not in compliance with the code and puts consumers at risk, it may give the impression to consumers or other professionals that that is what is expected of an RBT. If consumers come to believe that certificates act in a way that may cause them or their loved ones harm, then they may be less likely to seek out providers with that certification in the future. So acting in compliance with ethics requirements demonstrates to individuals both inside and outside of the field that the work completed by a certificate matters and the rights and outcomes of clients receiving services are important. That's a really good clarification. 
So I want to get into one specific code, if we can, and let's talk more specifically about the self-reporting code. Can you describe what it is and why it's important? Absolutely. Self-reporting means that a certificate discloses to the BACB any personal conduct, condition, or event that may pose a risk to others or reasonably impact their ability to safely or competently practice. Aside from self-reporting being a required component of the RBT Ethics Code, consumer protection is the primary purpose. It's about identifying and reporting situations that have the potential to negatively impact a consumer. So what might be reportable situations or events? Well, if the RBT was facing legal charges, any investigations or disciplinary action by a third party, like a funding or governmental agency, or their employer, um, and this would include termination for cause, or perhaps there is a mental or physical condition that impairs their ability to provide services as an RBT. Okay, and I assume these are just examples and not an exhaustive list. Correct. These are broad categories of reportable situations, but certainly not exhaustive. The BACB is unable to provide advice about whether or not a specific event should be self-reported, but the RBT handbook provides some pretty clear criteria that should be used to determine whether your specific event is required to be self-reported. The RBT should review the ethics code, the handbook, and the self-reporting section of the ethics webpage, and reach out to their supervisor for support. In general, when in doubt, self-report. Fair enough. But I do think there's a fear that self-reporting means that the RBT will lose their certification. Is that a real concern? Well, it is something that we do hear often, and I can certainly see why people would be worried about losing something that they've worked so hard for. But self-reporting doesn't at all mean that an RBT would get in trouble from the BACB or lose their certification just for self-reporting. Once the BACB receives the self-report, staff will review the information and reach out to the RBT if additional documentation or details are needed. Based on that information, the BACB will make a decision about whether to clear the self-report or generate a notice of alleged violation. Remember, our goal is to protect consumers from harm. So each situation is evaluated based on potential risk to consumers. Okay, so what if someone else submitted a report to the BACB about an RBT? Is it still necessary for the RBT to self-report? Yes, and for two main reasons. One, it's part of the ethics code to self-report. <laughs> and two, the RBT usually has the most relevant information about the situation, and it's a way for them to provide their side of the story. It also demonstrates that the RBT is taking accountability for their actions. Okay, so now I want to walk through some common scenarios an RBT might encounter and then determine if it's a potential uh, for an ethical violation. Let's start with this first one. An RBT was just promoted at work and wanted to share their accomplishment on social media. They posted a picture of themselves during a session in which the client's back was to the camera. This type of situation definitely comes up. And it may rise to the level of an ethics violation because the picture of the consumer may still have identifying details that could disclose who the client is, even if you can't see their face. All clients have the right to confidentiality and protection of HIPAA, which could be violated if they were outed on social media about where they receive services. Okay, so how about if they posted a picture of themselves standing outside the clinical setting, 
no picture of clients, just a phrase that says, thanks for your support, and then tagged some of the previous client's parents with whom they're friends on the social media platform. Well, it's good that they didn't include a picture of clients, but this still could be considered a potential violation if the clients still receive services at that setting and there's a potential for the RBT to provide services to them, even if only occasionally. This might also represent a potential multiple relationship because it mixes a professional and friendly relationship with the parents. Okay. Yeah, social media is such a big part of our culture, so I know this does come up. And parents and providers work really closely with each other because that's usually what makes a difference in the client's services. Yeah. And because of this, it's easy to cross the line between working well together and friendship outside of services. It's important to maintain those professional boundaries, though, because that's what helps keep all parties objective and keeps the focus on the client's needs and growth. Okay, so let's do some rapid fire questions. Well, Sarah, it's never rapid fire when it comes to ethics because there's always more to it. But let's try it. Okay, let's do it. I'll give a short scenario and then you give the slightly longer explanation. All right. All right. Let's start with this first one. An RBT quits their job without notice. Well, an RBT leaving abruptly may not necessarily constitute an ethics violation, even though it's certainly unprofessional. We discussed this in our March 2023 newsletter, and we encourage RBTs and their supervisors to review the continuity of services resources on our website to help ensure clients experience the least amount of disruption to their services when providers transition away from service delivery. Okay, so how about an RBT gives their supervisor a $5 gift card for National Coffee Day? My favorite holiday, by the way. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Well, occasional gifts of $10 or less are okay to give or receive as long as they don't become expected. Okay. All right. Last one. A family offers an RBT dinner while the RBT is working on meal-related skills with the client. This is not likely a violation, uh, but the RBT should speak with their supervisor about when it's culturally and professionally appropriate to decline and or accept these types of offers. Okay, awesome. So now that we've covered a few common ethical scenarios, what are some resources RBTs could review to help them navigate ethical situations? We have lots of great resources on our website, like the RBT handbook, our code enforcement procedures to help RBTs understand the process of how our ethics codes are enforced. And we also have a blog about what to do when certification doesn't go as expected. Of course, a great resource is the RBT's supervisor. The RBT should go to them when they have a question and RBT supervisors should be sharing these resources with their supervisees. I'm really glad you mentioned their supervisor. They should be able to get really great support and guidance whenever they have a question, or at the very least, the supervisor could direct the RBT to a helpful and relevant resource. All right, so since we're on this topic of ethics, not that we expect this to happen often, but what should an RBT do if they have questions about their supervisor's ethical behavior? It's a great question, and we actually cover this question in the blog I mentioned. But in general, the RBT should be familiar with the ethics code for their supervisor. This will help them identify if a behavior they are observing is in alignment with the ethics code. And once they have that understanding, the first and best thing to do is speak directly with their supervisor. 
basically follow the chain of command. If there's truly a violation, they could submit a report on the BACB website. Awesome. Well, these are really great reminders. And thank you for sharing those resources too. Holly, I could talk about ethics all day with you, but I think we're at the end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, We'll talk with you later. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.